This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 22, Exodus chapters 29 through 32. With Aharon and his sons, the Kohanim, now established as the religious elite, God continues to elaborate on the induction ceremony, its required clothing, the sacrifices, and the rituals, such as washing, the dressing, the dabbing of some blood from the sacrifice onto Aharon and his son's ear, as well as the right thumb and right big toe, the sacrifices, the elevation of fats and loaves in the palms of the Kohanim, and various cuts of the meat and organs. This consecration goes on for a week, but it's to be continual as of the bringing of sacrifices. Chapter 30 goes on to describe the incense altar and how one is to conduct a census, but not by counting people, but by counting coins. Quote, that there be no plague on them when they count them. Verse 18 describes the bronze basin to be used by the Kohanim for washing their hands and feet, quote, so that they do not die. Once again, God is concerned about occupational safety. Verse 22 begins another set of instructions from God about preparing the anointing oil of holiness and the smoking incense, and anyone who cribs the recipe and makes it for himself, quote, is to be cut off from his kinspeople. With so many aspects of the dwelling project spelled out, God needs someone to oversee it. Chapter 31 introduces Bitzalel to head up creative and Oholiav to get the project done on time and under budget. God then reminds Moshe that despite the massive work ahead, or work in general, there is the Shabbat, and it needs to be set aside as a, quote, sign between me and you that if profaned will bring death to the profaner. And with that last admonishment, God presents Moshe with the two tablets of testimony written by God himself. But it seems that Moshe has tarried on the mountain, and in his absence, the Jews have grown restless. They press on Aharon, Arise, they tell him, make us a god who will go before us. For this Moshe, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. To which I would have responded, You bastard! But Aharon did not. And he does, I guess, what anyone pressed into unwanted action does. He stalls, telling the men to grab the gold earrings from their wives' ears and children, which they do. Then Aharon says, well, not exactly, but he gets to work on fashioning a molten calf, and he even builds an altar. But then, I guess, he tries another stall, telling everyone, hey, let's have a festival to Adonai tomorrow. But tomorrow comes, and no Moshe. So the party begins, and the people start tailgating like there's no tomorrow. And Adonai, hearing the wild goings-on, tells Moshe, you better get down there, because the Jews you brought out of Egypt are making a fine mess. But then God reconsiders and tells Moshe, you know what, I'm going to do one better. I'm going to reboot the whole enterprise and build a whole new nation from your descendants. And Moshe deploys the weapon used by Jewish mothers from time immemorial. Guilt. Okay, so kill them. But what will the Egyptians say? That you took them out of Egypt just to kill them? Such a bother. And did you forget the promise you made to Avraham and to Yitzchak and to Israel about their children and a promised land? Eh, but never mind all that. Go ahead. Just kill the Jews. Go ahead. Go ahead. Quote, And Adonai let himself be sorry concerning the evil that he had spoken of doing to his people. So Moshe heads down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony, and he meets Yehoshua on the way, who, by the way, is convinced that there must be a war going on downstairs. But Moshe corrects him. No, they're having a party. And when they near the camp, they catch sight of the calf and the mixed dancing, and Moshe goes ballistic, 
are more like launches the tablets like a ballistic missile and they smash at the base of the mountain. And then, if that display is not, is not angry and, and rage-filled enough, Moshe smashes the calf and grinds it up into little itty-bitty powder pieces and dumps it into water and makes the Jews drink it. Then Moshe yells at Aharon, and Aharon responds with a variation of what Moshe tells God. Got your back, Jack. Bitches be crazy. Oh, that, and, and that they made me. And then Moshe yells, whoever is for Adonai, come to me. And the Levites, his kinsmen, huddle up, and Moshe tells them to go get swords and kill basically everybody. In the subsequent bloodbath, 3,000 men die, and the following day, Moshe still isn't through. He lays into whoever's left and heads up the mountain. And then he tells God that, yes, the Jews have messed up, and that God has to accept it and forgive. And if not, God should punish him. And God says, fine, he won't smite the Jews, but he reserves the right to smite individual Jews. But then he sends a plague to smite the Jews anyway. So, there's a lot to talk about in this week's portion. Let's get to it. In this episode, I want to talk about the Prime Directive and how it's really nothing more than moral cowardice fluffed up as benevolent non-interference. Yes, there is a thread here. Patience. Patience, my love. So when I think how, despite all the laws of nature upending miracles that the Jews have witnessed firsthand in the, in the previous week alone, not to mention the previous month, it's not that surprising that they still manage to act like a bunch of ingrates. Explain it as a function of their history of oppression, their stiff-neckedness, their being a bunch of putzes, or... Hordes of panicky people seem to be evacuating the town for some unknown reason. But as we all know, they quickly ditch Moshe in a moment of either bad math or bad decision-making. What I want to talk about is what happens next. Well, not exactly next. The, the next next. The next after next. So the bad math and bad faith Jews press upon Aharon to make them a new god. And here's the, the, the next next. Aharon agrees. Aharon, if you recall, was summoned by God to be the mouthpiece for Moshe. He, he went on to be the staff bearer, the voice of reason, the consigliere, the, the spokesperson, the enforcer, the high priest, the ephod wearer, the animal sacrificer, the blood sprinkler, not only the Kohen prime, but the ancestor of all the Kohanim. In other words, Aharon is not a red shirt. But in this story, Aharon is a punk. Now, I don't want to be, give the impression that all I do on Tanakhcast is take every biblical figure down a peg or five, We've talked about variations of this theme before, but this instance, I would say, is different. Here we have a particular moment, a critical moment in Aharon's life, where a decision has to be made, a fateful decision with fateful ramifications for many, many people. So let's do here what I did with the woman in the Garden of Eden. Let's play out a, a counterfactual to shed a little light and understanding on what did happen. And perhaps we can conclude, after all, that Aharon was not a punk. Maybe. So... As chapter 32 recounts, Now when the people saw that Moshe was shamefully late in coming down from the mountain, the people assembled against Aharon and said to him, Arise, make us a god who will go before us. For this Moshe, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. 
It's not clear how much time passes between this verse and the next, and whether Aharon's response was off the cuff, yeah, what a great idea, and here's how I'm going to help, or a hem and aha, stall, 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 how can I short-circuit this idiotic idea? But Aharon replies, Break off the gold rings that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. But let's consider a different response. Let's consider what would have happened if Aharon had said, Are you totally deranged? Here's what might have happened. From best case to worst case. The people are momentarily taken aback by Aharon's harsh yet Hollywood scripted reply and then reconsider their request, realizing that perhaps their math might have been off or that even though Moshe was late, shamefully late, there's probably a sound explanation and emotions are running high, which is probably not the best time to be making decisions about anything. Or... The people are struck by the impertinence of Aharon's reply, and perhaps he's a little out of line, but they regroup, reconsider, then press him again, and again Aharon tells them, You go to hell! You go to hell and you die! In which case we get to scenario three, where the people decide that Aharon and his brother Moshe have told them what to do for the last time. They're not going to stand in the way of the will of the people, and as such, each man takes a hold of a stone and settles this business with Aharon once and for all. So perhaps Aharon knows that if he refuses, this is where the story ends. This is where his story ends. And, and as he has no one to get his back, he stalls and then capitulates. He fashions the golden calf. But I wonder, who wouldn't cooperate if faced with a similar dilemma? If faced with your own death at the hands of a mob, and perhaps the deaths of your family, what wouldn't you do to avert that fate? I am Eddard Stark, Lord of Winterfell, and Hand of the King. I come before you to confess my treason in the sight of gods and men. I betrayed the faith of my king and the trust of my friend Robert. I swore to protect and defend his children, but before his blood was cold, I plotted to murder his son and seize the throne for myself. I mean, this is the choice that Eddard makes, and it doesn't turn out well for him. But it could have if Joffrey wasn't such an evil, sadistic bastard. Oh, well. Aharon makes a similar choice, and it does work out for him, sort of. He even cops to making the golden calf when Moshe comes down and puts the hammer, or more like the tablets, down. But in the ensuing purge, Aharon survives, and he keeps his position in the religious hierarchy. He is the Teflon Kohen. But if this was how it went down, or at least how subsequent thinking about this incident thinks it did, then I would be less bemused, totally unimpressed, but less bemused. But it's not. Subsequent commentators, even the Quran, do not frame Aharon's decision here as a matter of survival. They don't think of it as a sword to your neck, sword to your family's next, now decide moment. Folks explain Aharon's choice as framed by his personal variation of the prime directive. The prime directive for the non-trekker is one of those one of the directives in the Articles of the Federation, Chapter 1, Article 2, Paragraph 7, which states, Nothing within these Articles of Federation shall authorize the United Federation of Planets to intervene in matters which are essentially the domestic jurisdiction of any planetary social system, 
or shall require the members to submit such matters to settlement under these Articles of Federation. But this principle shall not prejudice the application of enforcement measures under Chapter 7. So in other words, if a Starfleet vessel, say the Enterprise, comes across a planet racked by, I don't know, a pandemic, the mass death is considered a domestic matter, and thus the Prime Directive dictates a stance of non-interference, which many folks have claimed is nothing less than moral cowardice. They would argue that compassion should trump policy. So here's Captain Picard to break it down for us about why the Prime Directive is, is critical and important. Beverly, the Prime Directive is not just a set of rules. It is a philosophy, and a very correct one. History has proved again and again that whenever mankind interferes with a less developed civilization, no matter how well-intentioned that interference may be, the results are invariably disastrous. Another rationale we often hear is this kind of pseudo-Darwinian argument for non-interference. They sort of, you know, going back to that pandemic example, they would say the pandemic, it, it could be argued, is part of a nature's plan, and messing with that will undoubtedly mess with that species' trajectory on that planet. Except that nature is not proactive. Nature cannot plan. Humans plan. And then God laughs. Humans, or at least the humans who command Starfleet vessels, also apply the Prime Directive inconsistently. Depending on a planet's strategic importance, or the circumstances in which a starship crew finds itself, the Prime Directive may be adhered to, or tweaked, or bent to the breaking point, or just violated. To paraphrase von Clausewitz, the Prime Directive is the continuation of politique by other means. As Aharon did not possess warp technology or advanced medical techniques, his prime directive was a bit different. As explained in Pirkei Avot, chapter 1, verse 12, Hillel would say, Be like the students of Aharon. Love peace, pursue peace, love humanity, and bring them close to Torah. So where Archer or Kirk or Picard or Janeway would remain above the fray and not intervene, Aharon would act decisively, and uh, maybe he would have tried to broker a peace between Chancellor Gowron and the Romulan-backed faction, in the Klingon Civil War. Aharon would not have armed the Combs in their struggle against the Yangs, but he would have strived to convince Wu that Cloud William was sad about the fighting and he was ready to make peace. And then he would tell Cloud William that Wu was very upset about the bloodshed and he was ready to apologize. So when Wu and Cloud William would meet on the verdant plains of Omega-4, their quarrel would disappear and they would embrace. In other words, Aharon always intervenes. For him, the value of peace and peacemaking is preeminent over all other values. So when pursuing peace butts up against other valued values, like speaking the truth or, say, fidelity to God or keeping the peace, Aharon always opts for the former over the latter, to a fault. His approach is reminiscent of an individual who cites this approach as exemplary, Hillel. Hillel established a school known as Bet Hillel, and his partner and rival Shammai established a school called Bet Shammai, and these schools existed in Palestine between 10 BCE and 70 CE. Shammai was known for taking a more stringent attitude on questions of halakha than did Hillel. And this is a general principle of interpretation in the Talmud, except for a number of cases in the beginning of the Babylonian tractate Eduyot, where Shammai is lenient and Hillel is strict. Here's one example from Tractate Ketubot, pages 16b to 17a. The question, how shall one dance before a bride? Shammai demands, quote, the bride as she is. That is, even on the sensitive matter of the feelings of a bride on her wedding day, 
Shammai is rigid and consistent. He says you must be honest because the source from Exodus 23 indicates that God commands us, quote, from a false matter you are to keep far. According to Shammai, the choice before the merrymaker is between a value, truth, and an anti-value, falsehood. So it's a no-brainer. You tell the truth. But how heartless must one be to tell a bride on her wedding day that she's plain-looking or unpleasant-looking or even nice-looking? When Hillel offers a formulaic praise, a coded compliment that knowingly winks at imperfections by overlooking them, Shammai dismisses it as deception. Hillel does not see this case as one that is logically and morally bivalent, but a struggle between two equally important values, truth and sensitivity to another person's feelings. Hillel understands that truth is an important value. He, too, you know, listened to episode 20, and he understands the prohibition against deception. However, according to Hillel, in this instance, sensitivity takes precedence over truth, despite the Torah's absolute authority and its explicit teaching on the matter of avoiding falsehood. But here is the difference between Hillel and Shammai. Hillel completely agrees with all of Shammai's rationale, his position and interpretation. Yet, Hillel cannot rule in a similar manner because being consistent about honesty in this case would involve unnecessarily hurting the feelings of the bride and damaging the relationship with her, her family, and all the guests. So Hillel advocates a white lie as a solution, as does his exemplar Aharon, who would have lied to Wu and to Cloud William to get them to meet and make peace. But Hillel would not rule similarly about white lying in all situations. In the case of the plain bride, one can resolve the seeming contradiction between honesty and deception with a feint. But this resolution, as all resolutions for Hillel, are situational. For Hillel's rival Shammai, values, and therefore their, the solutions to these problems are absolute. Which reminds me of Emerson's famous quote, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. So how does this connect to Aaron? Well, was he foolishly consistent about pursuing peace, or was just, this just a post-facto spin to cover up the fact that he was weak in a decisive moment and opted to save his own skin? In truth, Aharon never claims that peace-pursuing motivated his decision, but his apology, if I had to categorize it, using the typology of apologies from a previous episode, it falls solidly into the mistakes-were-made category, which, even when it comes out of the mouth of the high priest, still sounds like bullshit. As the leader of the people, even a temporary leader, you're not allowed to put your own interests ahead of the people you lead. As the leader of the people, you are not allowed to privilege your favorite pet value over those that must guide the nation or those that might bring down the wrath of God upon you. In other words, Aharon should have refused to cooperate, violating his prime directive, as he girded his loins for conflict, because on the matter of calf worshipping, there is no middle ground. Either you worship God in the appropriate fashion, or you don't. Now, I could go on here to talk about how you cannot really unpack this narrative of the golden calf, or that rather simplistic either-or, without relating to the golden calves that the North's King Yeravam set up in the temples of Beth El and Dan in Kings 1, chapter 12, verses 26 through 33, and how there's, there were really two streams of Jewish religious practice, family religion and state religion, but that would take us down into a whole different rabbit hole. One I talk about at great length in chapter two of my book, End of the Jews, Radical Breaks, Remakes, and What Comes Next. But until then, Aharon's bullshit excuse will have to suffice. It was enough for him, and it was clearly enough for Moshe. <laughs> Thank you.
as always, you can leave a comment, question, or comment at the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Tanakhcast, T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T, or at thenextjew.com, or leave a comment, question, or comment at the iTunes store. And while you're there, why not leave a review? That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun. As always, you're invited to come back and join us next week-ish for episode 23 on Exodus chapters 33 through 36. Y'all come back now. Here. Yeah.